every decision that I made from that point forward had one of two ways to go. And one was going to lead to me killing myself and one was going to lead to me living. Sometimes you can seem to do pretty much everything right in life. You give to others, you, you live with compassion, you love with every fiber of your being, and you fill your days with work that you love. And by all rights, the universe should just be rallying to support you. And you know what, most days it does. But then one day, it seems to abandon you. It pushes you off a cliff, and instead of flying, it clips your wings and pulls the net out from under you. It thrusts you into chaos, devastating loss, darkness so deep you wake up every day wondering whether to move ahead or to take your own life. How we handle those places, how we rediscover life, that's what this week's episode is all about. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. Our story begins with an old friend, Erin Moon. So Erin and I first met about 10 years ago when she wandered into my yoga studio in Hell's Kitchen. Back then, she was a working actor, pretty much looking for free yoga. All I really remember was her smile made everybody smile. She was also in love. She was living her dream. And that would last a while longer. But then in a moment, everything would change. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Ertube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. We've known each other for what, 10 years, 12 yeah. years, something mm-hmm. like that. When did I you, you wandered into 2004, I wandered into Sonic and started right. and doing the work study. Know, I, I used to own a yoga studio named Sonic Yoga in, in Hell's Kitchen, New York City. Yeah. And you wandered in one day 
Yeah, I wandered in and because I heard that you could get free yoga. (laughs) (laughs) And I was a poor actor. (laughs) And I I volunteered for the work-study program. And I think I was practicing there for maybe three months. And you guys had someone drop out of your training program. And I had shown interest. Oh, is that what happened? I don't remember that. Oh, yeah. I'd shown interest in the training program and found out how much it was. And I was like, okay, really? I have... I'm on unemployment. (laughs) And, uh, And so you guys had someone drop out at the last minute and you guys sponsored me. So I worked off my tuition Wow! while I did my training. I had no recollection of that whole mm. part of the story. The manager at the time was like, just, just trust me guys. Aaron's cool peeps. So. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So, so you went through our training program mm-hmm. and became a yoga teacher and you've been rocking that for 10 years now, I guess. And yeah. acting. And- yeah. Acting and yoga. Tell me, about your, tell me about your career. My career. I mean, I did the normal stuff that actors do, which is a lot of auditions and not a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And um, and well, then. I, but when did you drop into New? Because see, I'm a New Yorker, so yeah, I yeah, yeah. There's oh, like a bit of an accent there. Two thousand two. <laughs> From Canada. Excellent. And um, I've heard about Canada. It's this. It's supposed r- to be really cool. Wild, wonderful nation <laughs> up, upstairs. I call you guys the big guys downstairs. We're like the nice neighbors who put, um, especially for New Yorkers, who put carpets down on their hardwood floors so that they don't disturb you. Yeah, we don't do that here. No. We don't wear our shoes indoors. And we're just, we're just nice people. No running with high heels on wood floors. No, 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 no. All right. So, so wait, what part of Canada? So I'm from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Got it. And born and raised, and I went to school there for acting, kind of working my way north. I went to two different schools there. And then I met my husband at Colorado Shakespeare Festival, where a teacher of mine was working. And we kind of went, we fell in love that summer, and he was American, and I was Canadian. And we went, oh, no. And we went to immigration, actually, in Denver. And they told us that our options to stay together was I had to be a nurse, a doctor, like a rock star, a movie star. Or invest a million dollars in the American economy. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, uh, no, 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 and no. Hmm, How do we do this? Yeah, it was bad. And so we spent a lot of time crying and trying to figure out what was going on. Because we were just, I mean, we were young kids. We both graduated from our programs. um, And we'd fallen in love and didn't know what to do. And so one time Stafford called a lady at immigration somewhere and called me his fiance. I mean, we'd met three mm. months ago. <laughs> and Did you hear him say that? Yeah. Like and I, I went, <laughs> excuse me. And he, uh, so he said, my fiance, and she said, oh, well, you could do a fiance visa with no idea what that was. And basically you apply for it. It takes a while for them to get it all figured out. And then you have three months in which you have to get married. Or you go home. And there's like, there's medical tests you have to do before too. It's bizarre. So Stafford was always nine ways to skin a cat. Like he could always figure it out. So he said, so I guess, are we engaged then? (laughs) As we're walking back across the quad to do our shows that night. And we were in different casts. And I said, I don't know. And he said, do we get rings? (laughs) We were like, I had no idea. So we kind of fumbled like, do we our call way. call parents or something like yeah, that? Yeah, because to us, it was a handshake. It was us going, I love you. I think that this is maybe something, mm. but I have no idea. 
it was buying time. Right. So we bought the time and we went to Ireland and we traveled and hitchhiked and lived in a tent for six weeks together. And his dad said, if you don't kill each other by the end of that trip, marry her <laughs> and just kind of worked our way towards until the fiance visa came. Then the on Valentine's day, um, I was in Vancouver cause you have to go back to your country of origin to get the visa. Mm. And on Valentine's day, they granted me the visa, which was kind of cool. And then a week later, we arrived in New York City in February 2002. Mm. Yeah. And then it was just working our butts off to try and get acting gigs and serving food like actors do in New right. York City and taping. I mean, and it's, it was so interesting for me because I let, you know, so I own a health, back then I owned this studio in Hell's mm-hmm. Kitchen. And so, which is like the heart of the theater district. Mm-hmm. So everybody, I mean, you know this, you're part of the community, yeah. right? Everybody, it was all singers, dancers, actors. Yeah. Some like you know, real, real working ones, but the mm-hmm. vast majority just like scrambling. And I had, I had never really had exposure to your world, to that world yeah, before yeah. until I dropped in there. And we lived in the neighborhood too, but actually having that building, that community really just immersed me in that world every day. And it's like, and I kept, I would always think to myself, I'm like, this is freaking brutal, man. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine, especially coming to New York, which is maybe what, you know, it's where everyone wants to come to make it, but it's pro- yeah. probably the hardest place to make it. Mm-hmm. And I would just see everybody like going out all day long and just like, boom, rejection, boom, rejection, Mm -hmm. boom, 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 every single day, all Mm -hmm. day showing up and trying to get gigs and having people slam doors on your faces nonstop. Man, that you have got to so love Mm -hmm. the craft to just to, to live in that space. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's that part of you, I feel that, that goes to the trunk and puts on the cool clothes. Like somebody's going to pay you Mm. to pretend, to tell stories, to be part of a community and to make believe. So who wouldn't bust their, bust their ass to do that for a a job. (laughs) But at the same time, it's brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think one of the really systemic issues within a lot of the acting community, especially in New York, is that people are working, then they're working jobs that they can drop on a dime. Right. So they aren't invested in the thing that they're doing between the shows. And so they need those shows so bad Mm. just for their soul. And it took me and Stafford both a while to kind of figure out how do we, because we were always seeking balance. And I don't think we knew at that time in our life, but we kind of did later. We were the ones who would book tickets to go see our family. Mm -hmm. Our friends wouldn't because they're like, well, what if I get a call back and I've got a flight to go see my parents? And what if that is my big break? Always this idea of the big break or, or the show that I, you know, is going to be the thing that leads to the thing that leads to the thing. And your health insurance is also dependent on how much you work Mm -hmm. because of the union, which is really also another added pressure in the United States. How much you work in as an actor or how much you work just in general? As an actor. Okay. Yeah. So you had to, even if you were getting paid nothing, you just had to book a certain minimum number of hours to make sure that you kept your health insurance. Yeah. 12 weeks to get six months and 20 weeks to get a year. Which for actors is a lot of work. Right. It's actually, you are a working actor, which is as it should be for depicted by a union and blah, blah, blah. But it makes for a pretty stressful life. Mm. And it was, I think like four years in and you spend so much time away from your partner. So we we were spending close to six months apart from each other in the early parts of our quote unquote marriage and relationship with each other. 
So you are also negotiating all of these other young people who are, you know, going out drinking and everybody's gorgeous because they're all actors, Mm -hmm. you know, and and vibrant and interesting. And you make these really quick families that don't really know each other. So it's kind of a faux family. So it was a lot of negotiating within a relationship and just in life. And it it was about it was a 2005, 2006 that I started working at recorded books as a recording engineer and mm-hmm. editor for the narration of books. And that job gave me health insurance and it was, it didn't pay well, but I could make my own hours and they let me go and do shows and come back. Mm-hmm. And the second I got that job, I started booking more shows because I didn't need to. Yeah. Isn't that always the way that it happens? It, yeah. It's really interesting. There's um, I, my philosophy on keeping a full-time gig as an artist has, is actually really evolving a lot. You know, there are a lot of people where I was like, look, if you can make your full-time job, like your art, your craft, your passion, rock it on. Yeah. And like, and some people can, but what I've also seen happen, and it was interesting, I was reading a book called Daily Rituals, which is a fabulous mm. book where they track the daily rituals of like, I don't know, three, four, 500 of the world's greatest actors, writers, uh, scientists, mm. all these different things. And there was an interesting thing, a large number of them, more than I thought, um, had full-time gigs and they would write on the side or they would do this thing on the side. There was never a thought of like, I can't wait until I can just do my writing and quit my phone. They were like, no, the fact that I actually, I have something, which is, I'm not madly passionate about, mm-hmm. but, but I'm okay. Like mm-hmm. I like the people, it's cool. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about money at all. That actually gives me the, the freedom so that when I go and do my art, the three other mm-hmm. hours of the day, I don't have to worry about modeling it to anyone's perception of whether they think it's good or viable yeah. or juicy or anything. I can just go do what I need to do. And if it lands, great. And if it doesn't land, that's okay because I'm doing what I need to do. And what I've seen is when you get to that place, that's when your game rises because you yeah. don't need, it doesn't have to be commercially viable. Yes. So you're willing to take risks. In a way that very often you would never take risks if you know this has to find an audience or I'm out of my apartment. So it's really interesting because a couple of years ago, I probably would have said, you know, like you've got to try and make that thing your full time thing. Right. I'm not as convinced anymore because I've seen some really top notch creators, makers, uh, innovators have their full time gig and then do this other thing three to five hours a day still. Right. And be totally cool with it. And also you know, have creative output. That's astonishing. So I'm, I'm kind of more on the fence these days, which is kind of an interesting evolution for me because I didn't think it would be like that. But it's like what we were talking about earlier, where your definition of yourself doesn't lie in, in the things that you do, which is, I think then you have to parse that out a bit because it is, and you want to be authentic in the things that you do. But if what you are doing is taking the garbage out, then that is what you were, that is the thing that you are doing. And so that if I'm working at recorded books as an engineer and I'm an actor, I define myself as an actor and a yogi, Mm -hmm. then how do I do that? Well, and I don't know if it's that Protestant work ethic thing. I don't know what it (laughs) is. Or the Canada thing. Yeah, or Canada (laughs) thing. It's me being nice. Um, (laughs) it, It allowed me to let yoga be yoga. 
Mm. Yeah. So I was pursuing my acting career and pursuing the crap out of it, like actors do in this town. Although not as much as some people I know are doing mm-hmm. it in this town. Like right. I, I didn't go to all the right parties. I didn't make sure I was going to all the right readings and see, having people see me all the time because I want, for me, like my tribe and my authentic tribe, it was important to me, my friends, my family, and I didn't want to be inauthentic. And so just schmoozing for a job is not authentic to me. It wasn't good for me. I couldn't, couldn't do that. Couldn't rock that well. And, and so letting, having that job not only allowed me to get the acting gigs when I did, but it also allowed yoga to be yoga. And so yoga evolved and I went from everything from teaching a bunch at Sonic to teaching like Ion Hersey Ali. I taught her private lessons um, that I, and I got in touch with her through recorded books for a year Mm. And it was an amazing gift for me to be in contact with with this really beautiful woman who's gone through an incredible amount. She's a human rights activist. Mm. Um, and and that would have never come into my circle if I was just actively, wholly, crazily pursuing all of these careers that you kind of have to do that to right. supposedly get to the top of them. And then I eventually started narrating. And then I stopped editing the book. So now I was narrating books at Audible and at Recorded Books and some other companies. So I had that and then, you know, the acting gigs and yoga being yoga. And and on top of it, I had this like really epic, awesome love and relationship. And I kind I say to some of my friends that it was like Stafford and I, you know, we're going along and like many people in your 20s, you're really ambitious about that job. And you're like, I'm going to do that job and I'm going to kick the crap out of that job. (laughs) And I'm going to get to the top of it. I'm going to be in Broadway, you know. And uh, then we realized that love was better than career. We were like, oh, so this love thing, Mm. this is awesome. Like I am willing to go and book the trip to Puerto Rico to like spend a week on a beach with my lover because this is fantastic, this love thing. And then... We started to look around even more. And I was talking to you about having this awakening that we had, like just as we were kind of bridging over 30 in our early 30s, um, where we just it's like the blinders came off and we saw, oh, I participate in this world on a whole nother level. I my footprint and what I lie down, like what interaction I have in the food I eat and the clothing I buy and my consumerism. How do I vote? How do I how do I make this world a better place? And we talked about internationally volunteering. We'd always kind of talked about that. And we started also in our acting careers, getting a chance to work together a lot. So we were like, Oh God, being together is so much better than being apart. Mm. And now love and life are better than career. Mm -hmm. So it's that where the things that define me or the things that make me want to go live my life are the love and the life and the career is actually a pretty distant third. Mm. And, and then my husband got sick. Um, just as we were, we were actually supposed to be leaving. We were doing really good in our careers. We were, we'd done all these shows together and we were supposed to be leaving that day. Uh, we'd postponed it for a week cause his leg was hurting him a lot. And it, someone had said it was a hairline fracture. We'd got an MRI done on it. We were supposed to be leaving for Ecuador that day to go and volunteer for two months. Mm. And we'd been learning our Spanish. Our whole whole apartment was labeled. (laughs) Because Canadians, there's no self-respecting Spanish speakers in Canada. (laughs) I mean, really, it's too far away. It's too cold. Um, So I was learning Spanish. And he grew up in the States, so he knew Spanish. 
And it was that day that he was diagnosed with osteosarcoma in his leg. And we learned that was on his birthday. And then on my birthday, we learned what what kind of cancer it was and that it had actually gone to his lungs as well. Mm. It was presenting in his lungs, which is very odd. It's also a children's cancer. Mm. So he's maybe one of 10 people in all of North America who had it that year at his age. Mm. It's kids between 11 and 25 Mm -hmm. who get osteosarcoma. And it usually only presents in the leg for it to then immediately also be in the lungs. That's kind of the next place it goes because your lungs filtrate your blood. And so that's where it goes next. But, and it's got a pretty good chance, survival chance if you catch it in the limbs. Mm -hmm. And then he went through a year and a half of treatment. And I remember both of us at that point, we were like, really? sublet at our place. We're going to do international volunteer work. We don't need to learn this lesson. Mm. We don't need to learn how to see that everybody's story goes deeper than the person who's honking at you. Like why honk? I don't know your story. You don't know my story. We already felt that way about our interactions with people. We were already really, really trying to see the permutation of our life and how we could live our life and like make an eco home and still do a show once in a while to like feed that beast. We love gardening and we loved the idea of contributing to society in a way of not making such a, a big footprint and thinking about babies and all of those different things that we had said no to for a long time. And then we, he went through a year and a half of treatment where we got three months off kind of in the middle of it of multiple, multiple surgeries, interior prosthesis on his leg and multiple lung surgeries. And then we got three months off where it looked like it had been cleared. And then he actually did a show, which was really cool. Mm. He got to do a show with an interior prosthetic in his leg. So half of his femur bone's gone. His whole knee's been replaced. There's a rod inside his leg. So he's had to learn how to walk again and stuff on top of going through chemo and everything. And he was doing a show in Boston and he had gotten tests the week before he'd come back to New York and gotten tests. He was actually getting treatment at Sloan Kettering for a drug that hopefully keeps the cancer away. And uh, he'd gotten his test. You get three month tests after you're cleared. And we got back after he closed his show and we found out that it was back in his lungs bigger than it had ever been before. Mm. He got surgery for that. He came out of that was recovering. He got, was starting to get a big headache and his vision was getting weird. 
and his headache got really bad and he, he was acting a little off, forgetting things and stuff. And we went in and they did a scan of his head and he, it had gone to his brain and they did brain surgery and he survived 10 hours of brain surgery and he was recovering from that. And he, we got his leg tested again because his leg was starting to swell again. And then he was acting really odd and I, it was beyond just the post recovery of the Was Was he aware surgery. of the fact that he was acting on it was just something you were I mean, he, he was, it's interesting when people are put on steroids Mm. because they kind of become lovers or fighters. And I, it was so amazing to me. I was once again, amazed by him and he was just such a lover. Mm. (laughs) It was just, he went totally to the lover, but he was like, Hey, I love you. It's four o'clock in the morning. How are you doing? How are you doing? My heart is beating like a mile a minute and I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. And so he, he was aware that it, there was agitation going on, but not a lot because he was so in this like euphoric kind mm. of loving place. And he knew something was wrong. His leg was bugging him. He knew the vision, something was wrong with his vision, he was, but he wasn't concerned about it. He was still in the lover place, I think. My sister actually was helping him because I was recording a book because I was the only breadwinner and we don't come from families with money. We don't have any trust fund. We're totally blue collar kids. And And you're living in New York City. Yeah. Yeah. As actors and yogis. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we make the big bucks. And so my sister came in from Canada to help out and she took him into the hospital because he was acting odd and I came in. And he needed to get tests done that day because he was going to get radiation to get rid of whatever was left in his brain. And then we were going to kind of get him back in treatment. And they found it in his left atrium. And at that point, we didn't know at no point along the road did I really allow myself to have a time when I thought there was anything but hope. Mm. And part of that was, I think, my need to acknowledge that I needed to be there for him as his rock and the early stages when he went through really deep depression of, I mean, he was the picture of health, young, 34 year old guy, just the picture or 35 at the time, picture of health. Absolutely. And should not have had that cancer. I mean, it just made none of it made sense. And it plummeted him into a really bad depression. And I thought I was going to lose him to that, honestly. And then he came out of that eventually and got some help with that and was a rock star through horrible, horrible treatment. Um, Treatment not by doctors, but by to kill the cancer. I think they basically it was the night before he passed away that I finally asked a doctor. I was like, I didn't understand that I knew at that point for three days only that there was nothing else they could do. Mm. But we were talking about leaving the hospital and riding off into the sunset. We were like, well, get some oxygen tanks because he had to be on oxygen because of how it was working with his heart and lungs. And we'll just ride off into the sunset. Like, this is what we do. Last Aaron and Stafford adventure. We're going to go. And so we kept thinking that that was going to happen. And I finally kind of dipped my head out and I said, are we going to get out? Like, is this going to get better because he was declining again. He'd gotten better because he'd gotten pneumonia because of the backup of fluid. Mm. And then we thought he was going to get better and we were going to ride off into the sunset. And it was that the night before he passed that they said no. And I was really lucky to have a little bit of time with him that morning before he kind of went into coma, essentially, I guess, where we had a little bit more time. And even then he said to me where he's like barely able to kind of keep his focus on me. He's like, you 
need to go to the doctor so this doesn't happen to you. Mm. Like his care, all he cared about was me. And all he said to those doctors would just, just buy me as much time as you can so I can be with her. Do whatever you can. I don't care. I don't care about anything else. Just let me be with her for as long as I can. And then that's where I've been after that for the last two and a half years. So that's when he passed? Two and a half yeah, years two ago. and a half years ago. It's been uh, an amazing, in an awful way, <laughs> journey. And what I find interesting is to get to the point where I don't even identify with the Aaron that was before. Mm. Because the naivete of what can change. You know, I said, love and life are the things that were the most important thing. Well, when love is the thing that gets taken away or what I considered to be that in my life, then what do I have? I don't care about my life. And he made me promise to not kill myself. So then I'm faced and he made me make a lot of other promises too. But it's like, well, then what? So where do you go from there? Yeah. What every decision that I made from that point forward had one of two ways to go. And one was going to lead to me killing myself. And one was going to lead to me living. And how that has been actually the defining way that I have lived since I lost him. It hasn't changed. Hmm. Even as I become more able to accept who I am now. Cause I have had no idea what this is now. What, what is, what am I like? Why my whole definition of myself was wrapped wholly in our very healthy codependency and love. So how do you live? And it's that whole put one foot in front of the other thing, but it's quite literally that it's like, well, if I don't, I stay in this bed and I don't leave and then inevitably I kill myself. Okay, so for me, okay, that means I need to get out and I need to do all these jobs and just distract myself. Because if I don't do that, I will lock myself in my apartment and I will kill myself. And I promised him I wouldn't. So how does that... And at the time, I wasn't cognitively aware of that. I was in severe shock. I don't remember a lot of that time immediately following about six months kind of after. And then how, as I've become more used to or able to deal with the sadness that is now the depth of my sadness, which was different than it was before. How do I do that and get better at that? And, and I went to Ecuador where he said I had to go and finish what we started, what we were going to do. Cause this was like this big life plan. We were thinking about, you know, afterwards, maybe we'll join the Peace Corps. We'll move out of New York city and we'll build our eco home or, And so I went and that was the thing. And that was a year and a half after he passed. And that was the thing that jump started me. It got me out of a really bad depression Mm. and it got me interested, just interested. Just like curious. Yeah. Yeah. What we were going to do in 10 minutes I was on this mountain in the Andes looking at this big, big, um, a dormant volcano called Chimborazo. And we were at on a mountain across from it with a bunch of other volunteers. And I was looking at it 
And I, I said, thank you guys. And they were like, what? They're a bunch of 20 year olds. I'm grandma, like <laughs> international volunteering, you know, in your, or in your mid thirties is like your grandma, but they're like, what? And I said, I'm really excited about what we're going to do tomorrow. And I said, you don't understand. <laughs> I'm cognitively aware that I'm excited about what I'm going to do. Mm. And this is the first time since I lost my husband that that's the case. But it was the cognitive awareness of that. Right. So it wasn't even that you were interested. It was that you became aware of the fact that I can be. Yeah. I can be alive again. I can be interested. I can participate in this life again. Like that awareness of like, there's like cracks open a window of possibility. Yeah. Maybe things can be okay. Or or in some way. Or different. Yeah. Than this. Right. And, and being away from him. And I thought before I went, no way I have lost everything. And now I'm stupid enough to put myself in a position where now I'm going to lose. I'm not going to be in our apartment. I'm not going to be, you know, by our cats, our friends. I'm not going to be in a place that speaks my language by myself. I'm going to take myself away from everything I know. Like I have nothing. I mean, I didn't, and I don't, according to many, many, many people's standards. But according to my heart, I have less than what I could ever imagine that a a person or me, I could handle. I'm going to take anything that's recognizable away. What the hell am I doing? And I was petrified and I didn't even know I was depressed. Like I didn't, I wasn't aware of it. And it was a friend of mine who said, Oh, sweetheart, you're depressed. You don't care about what's going to happen the next day. You don't know. All you have is fear and you don't, and not caring. And it was, and she's like, you know, you can come back after a week. And I was like, yeah, I know. Cause I was so scared it, that just shook it up enough for me to go, oh, okay. Now I'm actually interested in what I'm going to do. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, it's having been through from the outside looking in um, mm. depression with other mm. people. One of the things that I was never aware of is that the most devastating part of it is the belief that it will never end. Yeah. I, I had never understood that about it. And uh, it's, it's an interesting experience being the person who's not going through it also, but supporting somebody going through it. Yeah, but it's, um, yes. But yeah, so so for you, there's this awareness that maybe things can be different. Yeah. Because it's the malaise. It's the, 
I'm in the same apartment. I'm in the same place. And why bother? And who cares? And just I'm doing the things. And like I was recording books. I was teaching. I had started teaching at a university, actors teaching at a university in in New York. I was right. teaching. Like, yeah. I mean, I was doing nice things. So from the outside looking in, people are like, oh, she's moving on with her life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that's what everybody wants. They're like moving on. You want you right. want to you do that. And I I always think the idea to me of moving on is that I'm cutting off from something before, whereas it's like that you're actually continuing the path that you're already on. You just are maybe aware of it in a different way mm. or have that interest or something. And I got back from Ecuador. A month later, I booked a ticket to Kenya because mm. <laughs> I was like, okay. And it wasn't because, oh, that did something for me. I just went, why the hell not? I mean, I jumped out of planes a year before that because Stafford sent me on this huge, big European thing that we had wanted to go on. And I went to New Zealand first. And I remember it, this was six months after he passed. He was like, you're going on the trip we were going to go on and you're going to go when we're go we were going to go. Mm. And I was in full shock. And that just shook me up from shock into denial, really. Right. I remember being on the plane on the way up to jump out of a plane uh, outside of Auckland uh, in New Zealand. And uh, I was like, just don't open. Just mm. I, I didn't want the plane to go down because that involved other people. And even then, the guy who was my tandem, <laughs> I was like, he's really nice. I don't want him to go. But I wasn't even I mean, really, I wasn't even thinking about that. I was just like, it could not open and I would not care. I just somebody make this decision for me. And I was so calm and everybody else is freaking out. You know, we're jumping from 15,000 feet. We're going to have a minute of, you know, uh, free fall. And I'm just like, whatever. And when the parachute opened, I immediately had a really bad breakdown. And I told the guy on the way up, I'm like, I'm not, I, this is what's going on just so you know. And he was a yogi actually. So he was pretty cool. I think part of that release was the physical release and the endorphin release, but it was also, maybe I wanted that to happen. Like maybe I wanted the parachute to open or maybe I was sad that it did. Mm. And then a year later to be at the point where I'm interested. And then now to be at a point where I'm finally accepting that I am that sadness and that that sadness actually depicts the level and depth of my love as well. And that those two things are not separate. They, I mean, they kind of are, but they flow together that I can love with my sadness and that I can love and I can be compassionate because of how much I miss Stafford mm -hmm. and that I can open myself up to love again, which was also a strict requirement of his <laughs> because I don't have to hold packages around everything anymore. I can just be the mess and kind of go and move away from the city like we had planned to do, like I had planned to do and try to figure out how to live all of these different permutations of life instead of having that single definition of I am an actor. I am, you know, a yogi. I'm doing a singular career. I can just, I need to find all and everything all the time because I know now that it's just, it's so fickle <laughs> mm. and to not live authentically in every moment that you possibly have and to live with compassion is a waste of everybody's, everybody's time and energy. Now I'm moving, moving home, mm, moving yeah. to Vancouver. Do you feel like the sadness is still there? Do you feel like it's something that will 
will ever go? Or do you feel like it's okay if it never does that you can still live yeah. a good life? It, but it's just a part of who you are. It's I, a I'm, part. There's this idea that sadness is something we're trying to avoid or tiredness or boredom or these negatively connotated states of being. I mean, if you certainly, if you looked at Eastern philosophies, we're not. And, and I don't think I am being aware of what sadness is being aware when I'm feeling it. I'm having awareness about my emotional states. That's a great thing to be aware of and to, to cultivate because then I can be happy. It's like what Brene says, then I can be happy about the little things. Nothing. It doesn't all have to be symphonic joy and happiness is not symphonic. I was talking to a good friend of ours, Jen Winnen, and she was saying, you know, it's the acceptance of our failures. When we do that, whatever failure means in and of itself too semantically in that moment, we give ourselves hope and hope is actually potentially what happiness is. It's not joy and oh my God, my baby's born and God, wow, amazing. It's those tiny moments. That is the living and it is the sadness as well. That it's all to avoid it. It's inauthentic. Like I can't avoid that sadness. Do I need to hold on to it and define myself by it? No. Is it always going to be there? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Because it's a horrific thing. And the sense memory and the trauma that we went through and that I've gone through will never not be part of who I am. And if I go forward with that in mind, the level and depth of my compassion and therefore my interactions with people, which is, I think, kind of what we're doing. Otherwise, we wouldn't be we wouldn't have tribes. It has a chance because I can't see you if I can't know my sadness and I can't see you if I can't know my love. And I can't see you if I don't know my boredom. And I can't see you if I don't know my anxiety. And I can't see you if I don't know these things. Um, but I, I need to be able to, hopefully for balance, be able to see them in myself too. But like, I can't not, I don't need to hold on to it. And it will go through many different stages, I'm sure. Actually, like this new Aaron, this like new person that I am, walks beside the rabbit hole, the black vortex that is that depth of sadness that I have never known in my life. And I was wide open all about love and everything's going great. And like always bright, open, positive person. And I am still, I just have a really big rabbit hole now that I can fall down to the bottom of, and then I can climb my way back out and meet whoever's going to reach a hand down, (laughs) you know? And I mean, just thinking about like your life looking forward and obviously it's you know, every day you wake up and it's a new day, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, that and, and how that's, and, and of course, like, you know, neither of us can prognosticate how your feelings may evolve or change 10 no. years from now, who knows what you'll be feeling. But, you know, if you find at some point later in your life, another love, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just how does this, how does your current emotive state how does it evolve? How does it change? And, and, um, like I said, nobody knows, but I think what's so powerful to me about where you are right now is this astonishing sense of awareness of Mm. where you are Mm -hmm. and that you do have, you're very aware of, 
of the slippery slope. Yeah. But you're also very aware of the possibility. Yeah. You know, so there is, and, and you know that you're walking, you're walking along a path where, you know, a step to the right or a step to the left can create radically different outcomes. Yeah. But it's, it's that awareness that kind of keeps you traveling along and, yeah. and hopefully continuing to step to the side that, you know, elevates rather than descends. Cause it's it, so powerful. Yeah. And I, it's, it's interesting because I feel like through the process I have, or processes, my Canadians would say, part of that, I've been playing catch up. I kept saying, I notice after I've gone through a stage or whatever, a, a time that, oh, oh my gosh, I was in really big denial. And now I am in grief. Like now I'm finally able to be just sad all mm. the time. And then to get to the point where I'm like, wow, that sadness led to a pretty deep depression. Oh, and now, and it's, I've been playing catch up and now I feel like I've been playing catch up better to a point where I'm like, okay, I am here and I'm finally able to dream again. I'm finally able to imagine possibility in a really uh, like true way and see that I can start to dream the potential of my life. Instead of the future that we had planned, which was so beautiful and filled with such gorgeous dreams. And to, if I'm going to let go of anything, it's not letting go that we had those dreams, but it's letting go of me living those dreams because I can't without him. So then what does that mean? And that's what this whole time has been. It's how do I let go of that? And to be at a point where I'm like, okay, I'm a fabulous mess, just like everybody else. And now I get to figure out how I dream what my, our life is now in the capacity that we, I live it. Like, how do I honor what I've learned from him and the guidance that I feel from him continually and will probably feel for the rest of my life and actually allow myself to fully dream my life and it what it's what puts that vortex a step further away from the path mm -hmm. you know where i know i'll go there and i have really sad days and really sad moments but i also know this too shall pass and i will find my way back out of it because now i'm learning how to like you said see the potential mm -hmm. yeah. which is oh so <laughs> you're about to embark, <laughs> speaking of potential and, and seeing your own dream, you know, seeing the future, you're about to, like, it's interesting, like we're reconnecting right now, mm -hmm. um, literally on, on the eve <laughs> of your departure from the city that you've called home for the last 12, dozen, yeah, dozen years. Yeah. So what, what's happening? You know, I think I have been leaving New York for four years now because we were leaving New York, um, when he got sick and that was four years ago. And almost maybe even longer than that, when we really had our kind of awakening and started to really see. And the thing that is hardest now is it takes a long time to make old friends. Mm. And I know that. And these friends are a decade in the making and they know Stafford and they've seen me through what will hopefully be the hardest time of my entire life which is a lot to take it in your mid thirties. My sister's there, which is great. And there's so many things that I want 
there and that art can have there that I, that I lack here. But I've left the city. The city itself, the feel of the city and what the city gives and, and like the, the fun culture of the city and all of that that fed me for so long, I left that a long time ago. Mm. I'm ready for mountains and ocean and climbing and hiking, kayaking and snowboarding and that culture and a, a culture of people who live in a place because of the nature that surrounds it, mm. I think. And that's why Vancouver is calling the leaving of the access, the immediate access to, I mean, the ease of old friendships. Yeah, I, oh. I think it's a lot of what keeps people from never stepping forward. Not that, I, that, that I'm judging good or bad, mm. but just yeah, those are the further you get into life. I think the harder we, we find yeah. it to, to find those people that we fall in love with and, yeah. and who are there. And there's just this old story, this ease. I mean, you and I haven't seen each other for a long time until this year. And yet there's still just an ease. It's like mm. old story. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So there's a few friends that are there like that. But that's the thing that's honestly, that's the thing that's hardest. And because also because of what I've been through, I don't spend a lot of time having anxiety about the future. Mm. If we were on the path already to learning living now, and then being dealing with sickness, and that is living now in a raw, raw way. To me, there, there's so little use, <laughs> even though I was just talking about dreaming and everything, but it's kind of like dreaming loosely as opposed to dreaming hard and fast and being like, I'm going to go to this place, I'm going to get right. this job, yeah. I'm going to do this thing. Instead, now it's kind of, it's broader. So I'm not too caught up about it yet. We'll talk to me in a week <laughs> before I leave. <laughs> When, I, when the boxes are back. In yeah, exactly. When I move my storage unit to the UPAC pod mm. and it travels 3000 miles and then I get on a plane with my cat and wave goodbye, that might be a different story. But I don't know. Right now, the best that I can do for right now is the most that I can do. And it's a, it's, it's a nice way to live. And I feel like I give more within the moment to even people I don't know on the streets and get through living in New York and not have the mantra in my head of too many people, too many people, too many people. <laughs> I've never had that mantra. By the way. Especially at rush hour. Of course not. Um, I'm excited to see where you're going. It is so interesting. I mean, we literally didn't see each other for, I don't know, eight years or something yeah. like that. And, bummed it. and it's just like, boom. Twice. Old friends. Yeah. That is something I think so many of us take for granted. And we forsake to a certain extent once we get into life and job yeah. and all this stuff. And and then um, when you bump into people where you just like, there was a connection in the beginning, yeah. but you haven't seen them, you're like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. I have no doubt you'll find those again in Vancouver. But like you said. It takes time. It's a process. Yeah. Yeah. Takes time to make old stories. Takes time to find the ease. I'm going to tell the same story a lot, which is has been part of traveling and healing from the loss of Stafford has been, you can have two conversations with me without knowing what happened mm. and without me saying, Oh, Stafford would say, or, Oh, th mm. that's totally Stafford. Or because my entire maturation as an adult has been with this amazing person. And, uh, and so having to talk about him helped me also process mm. a lot because I had to say it and I had to say it repeatedly and I'm going to have to do that more again. Yeah. It's, I'm learning that that's an okay thing and I'm learning how to deal with people who don't know how to respond to that well. 
because of the no. age that I am. Nobody, I mean, people are used to people 65, 75, you know, dealing with the death of their partner. And we were together for uh, 10 years. So married for 10 years, together 11. And people aren't used to that. And so they do that. Oh, I couldn't do what you're doing. And I just think you have no idea what you're capable of. And you have no idea when you make promises what you have to do. You have no idea what you're capable of. And you have no idea when you make promises what you have to do. So so the name of this is Good Life Project. And, and, mm-hmm. I, and I always ask everybody one question as we wrap up the conversation. That is, what does it mean to you to be out in the world living a good life? Mm. I think for me, it's accepting in yourself and in every being that you meet that we're all an awesome mess. (laughs) Um, and that there's no, there's no end to your compassion. If you're willing to accept that all of those pieces fit into every single person and every interaction with every single person you have. And so if you can cultivate that, then that means we all get to have a better life. At least that's what I think today. <laughs> I so love this conversation. Um, it's wonderful to get back together. Thank you. And uh, signing off with my fabulous guest, Erin Moon. Thanks so much for listening to Good Life Project. If you like this episode, we'd be so grateful if you'd share a quick review over on iTunes. It helps us get the word out to more people and make a bigger difference in the world. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.